This is the World War II Radio Podcast. A date which will live in infamy. This is London. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. Go ahead, Berlin. This is the National Broadcasting Company. Welcome to the World War II Radio Podcast. Today we have the NBC News of the World broadcast of August 29th, 1942. It features updates from the United States as well as live reports from Australia, London, and Moscow. The World War II Radio Podcast is a Brick Pickle Media production. If you like the show, please leave feedback on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. So thanks for listening, we hope you enjoy today's episode of the World War II Radio Podcast. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed. So you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Saturday, August 29th, and here's a roundup of the latest domestic and foreign news with reports by our staff correspondents here and overseas. Ray Henley is our first reporter, speaking from Washington. There has been talk in Washington the last few days on whether the president would follow through on that letter he wrote to department heads in which he asked them not to air their troubles in public. I have some rather interesting information for you on that subject this morning. Some information which indicates the president did mean what he said. The background is this. There is considerable critics, uh, criticism in certain official circles directed against the Navy because it takes sailors only as volunteers. In other words, the Navy does not use a selective service system to get its men. The criticism comes from a number of sources from army men who say that the Navy goes out and influences men to join up just at the point when draft boards send out final notices. And it comes from the Manpower Commission, which is trying to put all of the military and industrial manpower needs under a selective service arrangement. Then there is criticism of the Navy in the selective service system itself. One of the principal charges against the Navy is that it puts on a high-powered campaign to attract men with technical experience. Electricians and mechanics, generally speaking, men who know what to do when they get a monkey wrench or a hammer in their hands. The critics go on to say that naval recruiting officers make a special effort to get a line on men who are doing skilled work in some vital war production plant. Maybe have been deferred because of it from military duty. And then try to persuade those men to go into the Navy. Looking into this situation, I found that there are two things that stand out. First the average age of all men enlisted in the Navy is just about 19 and one-half years. And second, only 1% of all men taken into the Navy went from essential industries. The figures on men taken from essential industries are Navy figures gathered by a Navy survey. But the age figures are vital statistics, and that average age of 19 and a half years would indicate that not a very large number of skilled workers can be going into the Navy. Boys of 17, 18, and 19 just haven't had time to become experts. 
Now, I told you yesterday that this whole controversy, after being aired around Washington for some weeks, I find out now that it came up at one of the president's cabinet meetings recently. And there is some very interesting information as to what happened. The president is reported to have listened to the discussion for a while and finally broke it up with his comment. We won't apply selective service to the Navy for the time being, and I don't want to hear any more talk about it. So there is one example which indicates the president is determined to stop pulling and pushing among various government departments in order to keep everybody's eye on the ball, which of course means all-out coordinated measures to win the war. Fighting to hold the Solomon Islands may break out on a scale bigger than anything indicated so far. Indeed, the new fighting may already have been started. There is no further official communique from the Navy here in Washington, but there are hints in New Zealand and Australian dispatches that the third phase of the battle has started, or will not be long in coming. Our forces have had about 48 hours to rest, to recondition for new sea battles, and to consolidate land positions held by the Marines. Meanwhile, we have received the first eyewitness account from a newspaper correspondent who went with the attack force early this month. He is Richard Tregiscus of the International News Service, and he tells us a hair-raising story of how the Marines took Tulagi and two other islands. The landing, the landing Marines were met by fire from innumerable and well-fortified dugouts and hill positions, which swept our forces with a deadly fire. We learned from this reporter that this was a new type of warfare, fought to the last man in hundreds of caves, each a fortress in itself. And that's all from Washington. Now we switch across the distant reaches of the Pacific to one of our reporters somewhere in Australia. This is Sidney Albright speaking from somewhere in Australia. Fierce fighting is raging in the area around Milne Bay. The Australian infantry and militia forces under the command of an Australian officer, are reported to have been given practically full responsibility for smashing back the invaders. Constant pressure is being exerted by Allied planes in support of the ground forces. In heavy attacks at low altitudes, the enemy positions have been severely bound, and numerous fires were started. Medium and heavy bombers, manned by Americans, are reported to be playing a magnificent part. But generally speaking, the action may be regarded as an almost all-Australian affair. Most of the Australians engaged in the action are seasoned campaigners with battle experience in other theaters of war. A spokesman at headquarters said that the fighting was taking place in the jungle, bordering the north shore of Milne Bay. Specially trained Japanese troops, armed with machine guns and mortars, are believed to be opposing our men. One observer points out that since the Japanese landed at Milne Bay on Tuesday, no mention has been made in the communiques of air attacks on enemy shipping in the bay. And it can therefore be assumed that the transports which brought the invading troops and the naval force which escorted them have withdrawn. The convoy is believed to have included three transports, at least one cruiser, a destroyer, and a gunboat. As it will be extremely difficult for the Japanese to provide their troops with air support of any great strength, it appears that the enemy forces are more or less isolated. The latest word received from pilots engaged in the action over Milne is to the effect that the only Japanese aircraft encountered are old types, which is considered proof that the Japanese are feeling the loss of fighters, so many of which have been shot out of the air and destroyed on the ground during the past week in the Buna Gona sector, the Japs having lost 33 fighters since last Tuesday. 
Well-informed observers are watching the present conflict with a critical eye, since there was so much discussion about the impossibility of either side using the jungle passage between Kokoda and Port Morrisby over the Owen Stanley Range. The Japanese invading forces in action at Milne Bay have skirted the range. And should they be successful in reinforcing their troops and winning the present encounter, there are no topographical obstacles to prevent their approach to Morrisby. The I, so the I told you so's feel that their point has been won in that it was impossible to traverse the almost impenetrable Owen Stanley Mountain Barrier with large numbers of troops. Today's Daily Mirror states that although official circles in Canberra are pleased at the satisfactory news of the Solomons, it is pointed out that these successes already achieved by no means represent a completion of the huge naval task in the Pacific. It was fully expected when the Solomons campaign started that the naval struggle would probably involve many encounters in widely separated areas. This is Sidney Albright speaking from Australia. And across the Atlantic to Britain's capital, where it is now after two o'clock Saturday afternoon and where John McVane is ready to report. This is London. RAF bombers last night made strong raids against the German cities of Nuremberg and Saarbrücken. The raids cost the British 30 bombers. But this is probably not an exceedingly high percentage of the total number that went over. Nuremberg used to be a peaceful town. But it became the center of Nazi party activity, and the Nazis industrialized it. Now Nuremberg manufactures tanks for the German Panzer divisions. It also contains big electrical works. The Admiralty announced today that British submarines have sunk a couple of supply ships in the Mediterranean. From Egypt, London today hears only of continued patrol activity. The YMCA and the Salvation Army aren't fighting forces, but two men from the YMCA and the Salvation Army have just been awarded British decorations for bravery. Tobruk was being besieged. The town was under continual bombardment by planes and artillery. Tanks were charging the perimeter defenses. In the infrequent lulls, troops would get a brief rest from strain by seeing a picture at a mobile movie theater. Last night, it was announced that the YMCA official who ran the movies, Hector Tankersley of New Zealand, has been made a member of the British Empire. Arthur Harvey was a captain in the peaceful religious group, the Salvation Army, stationed at Dover. A bomb explosion trapped a woman under tons of wreckage. Harvey tunneled through the debris and stayed with the woman in constant danger for five hours until she could be rescued. Now he's been awarded the British Empire Medal. On the British home front, two questions are beginning to cause a lot of talk. The first is the case of the six Irishmen. Last Easter Sunday, a gang of young men fired revolver shots at a police car in Belfast. One constable, an Irish Catholic named Murphy, followed them into a house. A fusillade of shots killed him. The six men in the house were captured with their pistols and ammunition. They were tried, sentenced, and they will be hanged on Wednesday unless the governor of Northern Ireland reprieves them in the king's name. Now, influential Irishmen in Britain and many people in Southern Ireland are arguing that clemency should be shown, that the six shouldn't die for the one killing. The question is being debated back and forth. There seems no doubt that all six were implicated. But some people say that Britain should make a nice gesture to the Irish nationalists and reprieve the men. Others assert that under the law, all six are as guilty as the man who fired the shot that killed Constable Murphy. 
These people argue that the men have been given a fair trial and that in other cases, more than one person has been held responsible for a murder. They say that when men go out into the streets with revolvers looking for policemen to shoot, they're looking for trouble and they deserve what they get. The other question that's causing a lot of talk is the claim that the government is sending into stores inspectors who try to persuade shopkeepers to sell goods without coupons. A lawyer defending a shopkeeper yesterday referred to the practice as most un-English, which is about the worst thing an Englishman could say about anything. One of today's London papers blasts at the whole concept of agents provocateurs, agents of the law who induce people to commit an offense so they can be punished for it. The editorial rings in the Gestapo and the Ovra and thunders that the Britain's concept of law and notions of decency have been violated. The general feeling seems to be that such agents are needed to cope with wily black marketers. But they shouldn't try to play on the sympathies of honest small shopkeepers to get them to break the law. There's a parallel between the situation in Britain and our own prohibition days. Nobody minded tough methods of dealing with the big shot gangsters who ran the liquor rackets. But some people used to get very angry when a federal agent persuaded the bartender around the corner to sell him a drink, then used the liquor as evidence to arrest the bartender and close his bar. This is John McVeigh in London, returning you to New York. We turn to Moscow and the report now of Robert Magadoff. This is Robert Magadoff speaking from Moscow. The Luftwaffe continues to blitz Stalingrad and fresh German, Hungarian, and Romanian troops are being flung into the battle. But the Red Army hasn't budged an inch in the last 24 hours. On the contrary, the power and number of its counterattacks has been growing steadily. Fresh Russian reserves keep pouring in from beyond the Volga, while detachment after detachment of the Home Guard of Stalingrad is marching toward the battle line. The city's women, youngsters, and the aged, in the meantime, are fighting the flames which are devouring whole residential sections, and they are keeping the wheels of Stalingrad's war industry turning. The enemy is hastening aid to the forces which had broken through the day before yesterday, but are now fighting for dear life. These were picked troops, every one of them supplied with tommy guns and supported by more than a hundred tanks and many trench mortar batteries. They march into the attack as if on parade, counting on the moral effect. Thousands of them were killed off from the outset, but huge Junkers 52 kept bringing up reinforcements. Soviet tanks rushed to the scene and saved the day. The troops are now threatening uh, the troops rallied behind them and are now threatening this wedge with complete destruction in spite of the reinforcements that keep being flown in. Still, the danger hanging over Stalingrad continues grave and immediate. Blocked at one place, enemy tanks quickly turn elsewhere and there are countless small tank groups roving the vast spaces around Stalingrad seeking to break through toward the Volga at any cost. The Russians are jealously guarding all the approaches to their great river. Russia without the Volga is like a body without a soul, said a Soviet friend to me the other day. And the Red Army is outdoing itself in keeping the Germans away from the river banks. Russian schools open September 1st, and measures are being taken that every child is enrolled. 
two million schoolboys and girls will come to their classrooms straight from the fields where they help to gather this year's bumper crop. Goodbye from Moscow. These were the reports of Ray Henley from Washington, Sidney Albright from Australia, John McBain from London, and Robert Magadoff from Moscow. For the latest news, keep tuned to this station. This is the National Broadcasting Company.